0: Okay, speaking of embarrassing moments, let me ask you that. What's your most embarrassing moment? And I'm not going to do an open mic. Open mics are always a bad idea, especially at like a middle school youth camp. But um, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to make you actually answer. But just think about it. Because when you ask the question, what's your most embarrassing moment, usually something pops into your head, right? Or for some of us, many instances pop into our head. But the mo- embarrassing moments have a way of defining us. When we say the wrong thing, we do the wrong thing, and everybody's looking at us, and everybody's like... What in the world? What's wrong with that person? Like that—that that, It's just these moments that define us in a really negative way that we don't like. We, we, we kind of want to move away from that. We want to disappear in some of those instances, right? And so we won't ask you to share here, but maybe that'd be a good icebreaker for your community group, next com- community group. Just start it with, what's your most embarrassing moment? Because you think you know people, and then you hear those stories, and you realize, wow, these people are dumber than I thought, right? Like, so it, it's, what's your most embarrassing moment? And I I didn't want to ask you to like do that open mic style, but I did ask the internet because the internet always wins when it comes to that stuff. And the stories of people saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, they're everywhere. This one guy held a door open for a woman. She said, thank you. He wanted to say you're welcome, but he also thought about saying no problem. So he said, you're a problem. You can't recover from that, right? Like there's no, you can't back out of that. You just look dumb and then she hopefully moves on. But like that's that's kind of the thing. Th- this one was interesting to me. a guy uh, in a public restroom, using. Uh, he was in the stall and somebody knocked on the door of the stall and he couldn't think of what to say. So he said, come back with a warrant. <laughs> and I don't I that reveals a whole lot of weird stuff like uh, the, why was that the thing that they said so you say the wrong thing or you do the wrong thing this was a this was one of my favorites uh this this girl said three years ago a cute guy that I worked with wanted to give me a fist bump and I thought he was pretending to hold an invisible microphone so I leaned in and said hello <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've been doing that to people today, and it's more fun than it really sounds. It really—they're like, like, "What are you doing?" Like that's so weird. Um, this this uh, person said, "I just hugged my dentist because I thought he wanted a hug, but he was really just trying to take off my bib." <laughs> I, I I think I need a new dentist now. Like you want to kind of back away from that. You want to disappear in those moments. It's ridiculous, right? Like all these different things. Um, <laughs> In other news, I just tried on a jacket at TJ Maxx only to find out the jacket actually belonged to a girl who was trying on another jacket. (laughs) I can no longer shop at TJ Maxx, which is actually a good thing. I don't think anybody should shop there. It's like that store scares me. And and this one, I love this one. She said, "I, I waved at a man because I thought he was waving at me, and then I realized he was waving at someone behind me. And so I just, like, it was so awkward, I just kept my hand up. And a taxi stopped, I got in, I went to the airport, I'm now in Poland, I'm starting a new life. Because <laughs> that's how it feels, when, when something embarrasses you, right, you do something wrong, you say something wrong, you, you feel like, I just want to disappear, I want to remove, I don't want to ever see these people again. Like, so, that, that, those moments define us. But what if what if it wasn't something you said or what, something you did, but what, what if it was what you believed? Like, that's what we're dealing with here, that's what Paul starts this the letter of romans he's introduced the letter he's done a personal greeting and he starts unpacking the content in verse 16 and he starts with hey i'm not ashamed of the gospel we're dealing with embarrassment over a belief what what if you were you were shamed because of what you believed and what you stood for and how you lived your life and the decisions you made and how you do things like people came against that and thought uh negatively of you because of that and and it's not a what if right it's 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 how our culture perceives us it's how we uh, um, live in the culture that we're in paul's talking about his culture he's talking about specific situations that he experienced he's talking about um the romans christians and how they're going to experience if they haven't experienced they're going to experience the same thing of people criticizing you because of your beliefs and shaming you because of those beliefs and when you think about Paul and you think about his background, you think about why would he start this way? Why would he start this letter and say, hey, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know I'm unashamed of the gospel. What, what, what's going on there? And it seems like maybe he's felt that temptation, that he's been tempted at some point to maybe not say the things that he has been saying or water it down or take some things out or give a more palatable message that people will respond to easier. Maybe he's at least thought about turning down the volume. He was so bold. And you think about the, the criticism that he endured. As he proclaimed this message, as he went from town to town, starting churches, proclaiming the hope of the gospel, he was literally in danger all the time. I mean, he was put in prison, he was stoned, he was beaten, he was crit- criticized, he was ridiculed. I mean, all the things. He was in danger in his life because of the gospel. So you know he probably had that temptation to... Not do that. To not say those things. Like he's being criticized, shamed because of that belief, and he starts off by saying, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel." And when I read that and I see how he's starting this letter, to me, it it just is a reminder. It's a challenge, but it's a reminder first that there's always a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. I mean, if if we're honest, it's always there. It it may be like something we suppress, and maybe it's like low key for the most part. But like, there's this temptation in our culture. To be ashamed of the gospel, to be embarrassed of this thing that we claim to believe, and it, and it and it's because of how the world perceives that, right? It's because of how the non-believing, unbelieving world perceives that, and 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 it's it exists in our culture, and it existed in Paul's culture, and every culture in between. Like it's it's something that's constant. There's just always this pressure from the outside, this kind of this temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, and what. Paul's kind of reminds us of that he's endured that, he's, he's experienced that, and he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But he points to, in other places, we see Paul speak about this pretty directly. Because he says, first of all, the world sees it as foolishness. That the, the unbelieving world looks at our faith and the gospel and what we believe about Jesus, and they see that as foolishness. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, the word of the cross, the gospel, is folly foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We know it's the power of God, but to the world, it's folly. It's foolishness. It's ridiculous. Why? Because we worship a God that was crucified and killed like a criminal, crucified on a criminal's cross, and and not only that, but we, we proclaim that he was buried after that, and then on the third day, he rose again, and he's still alive, and the world sees that as ridiculous, crazy talk, foolishness they did it in Paul's day and they still do it in ours that's how we're perceived it it, when Paul one time one time in in the book of Acts he was in Athens and he got an audience on Mars Hill uh, in front of the philosophers the leader leading thinkers of the day the aeropagus and he was talking to them about Jesus and he gets to the point about the resurrection and he says and he came back from the dead and they shut him down that was the end of the speech they wouldn't hear any more of it. In fact, if you wanted to hear more, they had to pull them aside privately to, to ask them because they thought that message was so ridiculously foolish that they wouldn't even listen to it anymore. The world sees this message as crazy. And you need to, you need to understand that. You need to like, embrace that truth a little bit. And then the world also sees it as offensive. Go down in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 22, just a few verses later, he says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach the gospel. It's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's folly to the Gentiles. So there's foolishness again to the, to the world, and there's specifically a stumbling block to Jews. It's offensive to some people. Why? Because the gospel says you can't do this. The gospel says that you're not enough, and like his culture, our culture, we don't want to hear that. We think, I got this. I'm being good. I'm fine. I'm going to be okay. I can figure this out, and the gospel says, no, you can't. It doesn't matter where you are. You're in that mindset in our culture that's rampant, right? Of like, I'm just, I'm doing a good things. I'm being a good person. I think God's okay with me. I don't think I really need all that intensity. I just, I'm going to be good enough in the end. And the, the gospel says, no, you're not. No one is. That's where we're going in Romans. He's going to say, no one is good, not even one, which is the whole first section of Romans we've been talking about. Not even one, because that's the point that he's going to make over and over again. There's no one good. No one stands before God righteous. There's no one can earn their way to him. The gospel message is offensive to people that believe that, to people who think they're fine. I don't need that. That's, that, that's for you, that's not for me. And when you start saying, no, it is for you, it's for everyone, it's a, and it's offensive message. The world sees it as foolishness. The world sees it as offensive. That was for Paul's day, and guys, that's every bit true for us. In fact, if you stop and think about it, it feels like it's even the intensity continues to increase in the last few years. I remember it wasn't that long ago that people would shame us as Christians because they said we were wrong or they thought we were wrong. Like That's crazy. I can't believe you believe that. Haven't you heard about science and evolution and all these things? And they they look at us and the whole story, they think we're just wrong. And so they would criticize us for that. And that's still there, but it's like it's turned up because now they think that we're arrogant because we think they're wrong. They're not just okay with us believing something that's wrong. They know that what we believe Kind of puts them in a category where we're saying that they're wrong, and they think we're arrogant. They come again; we're we're offending them because of what we believe now. It wasn't that long ago that they would shame us because we believe the gospel is true. How can you believe that? I don't understand why you believe something like that. And now it's not just that, but they will shame us because we believe that there is such a thing as truth. Right? Like you, you believe absolute truth? That's crazy. That's outdated. That's not relevant in our culture. Like, everybody just does what they want. And so we're shamed and attacked and criticized because of this belief, because of the gospel, because of the truth of the gospel. And we need to be prepared for that because the temptation gets really, really high. Like, I, I don't know how familiar you are with Romans, but the next two weeks are going to be so much fun. <laughs> I mean, the Bible sometimes says some things we don't like we're not comfortable with we're like oh that doesn't feel good and when it when that feeling comes in when we start feeling that pressure we start feeling that embarrassment and that shame because of this because the culture is saying that's crazy the temptation is to start to water that down or take that out or dismiss it oh that's not what he really meant that's not like the like There's all these temptations that come in to create a new version of Christianity, a more progressive version of Christianity that doesn't really hold all the truth of the Bible, but it'll, it'll at least it would be more palatable for the masses, right? And the, the, the calling here is to stand on the truth of God's word, to not compromise it. And if you do... If you adhere to this, then you're going to have the temptation to be ashamed of it every now and then because the world's going to say that you're arrogant, that you're a bigot, that you're intolerant. They're they're going to say that you and I are on the wrong side of history because of what we believe. And so Paul says, I want you to know this. I'm not ashamed of this. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. No matter what has happened to me, no matter what has been said about me, here's the truth, I, I'm not ashamed of this message. And so when I see Paul say that, I'm, I'm like, okay, how do I get there? How do I become like that? How do I, how do I live without shame? And just, just so we're clear, like we're not talking about just having no shame. There's a little bit of shame that's healthy in our society. When you have absolutely no shame, you end up on peopleofwalmart.com. We don't want to go there, right? Like that's, In fact, that website is really what Romans 1 is going to tell us about. Um, so how do like a healthy but how do we live without shame of the gospel how do we like paul hey this message i'm not ashamed of this and here's what i think paul's going to tell us i think he's going to tell us that being unashamed comes from knowing the gospel the the secret to being unashamed is knowing it well i know that when you look at the points on the screen all right there's always a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel so here's how you do that um Know the gospel. That doesn't sound like that's helpful, right? (laughs) So here's what I want you to do. If you like to take notes, I want you to underline as bold as you can the word knowing. Circle it a few times. Put some stars beside it. Let me read it with a different inflection. Being unashamed comes from knowing the gospel. The path of being unashamed of the gospel is from you really knowing it. You understanding it. From us going deeper and deeper in our knowledge and understanding of what the gospel message is. What God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The more we know that, the more it will produce this boldness and confidence and faith and strength to not be ashamed. No matter what the culture says about us or does to us. Like That's what it will produce. The more we know the gospel. Which is... That's why it's going to be so great to walk through Romans because the theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. He's going to point us to the gospel. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he did. Here's what that accomplished. Let's talk about it. Justification, propitiation, redemption, reconciliation, all these things. Let's talk about it. Let's go deep. Let's understand it. Here's why it worked. Here's how it worked. Here's what it accomplished. Here's all these things. Here's what it means for us now. Here's who we are now. Like all this stuff. Like we're going to learn those things as we walk through the book of Romans because Paul's saying, hey, here's what the gospel message is. So when we know the Gospel, when we go deep, when we lean in, I want to know this message. I want to know more about it than I ever have before. It'll produce a life that's unashamed. And Paul says that because of this. He says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Verse 16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the power of God. For salvation. Don't miss the words. The gospel is not just a concept or a philosophy or an ideal or a teaching or a path. Like, No, here's what the gospel is. It's the power of God for salvation. The gospel is God's power and cognitive form in a message. It's the power of God. How do we know that? Because of the truth of the gospel, but also because of the way we experience the power of God in our lives to transform us. We have stories in this room, right, of being dead in our sin and our trespasses and God, because of his love, grace, mercy, kindness, made us alive in Christ Jesus. We put our faith and trust in him and we move from death to life. We move from darkness to light. We move from blind to being able to see because of the work of God. And so we know and have experienced the power of God in our lives, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. John Stott in his commentary on Romans said it this way, how do we know this? How do we know that it's the power of God for salvation? In the long run, only because we have experienced its saving power in our own lives. Has God reconciled us to himself through Christ, forgiven our sins, made us his children, put his spirit within us, begun to transform us, and introduced us into his new community? then how can we possibly be ashamed of the gospel? And, and so stop and think. You know the gospel, and the more we know, the more it'll produce that confidence and boldness in us but you also have experienced the gospel we as a church like we've been talking about this for the last few months about what God's been doing at cross point what we hoped it and, and and are seeing him do what we're kind of moving towards what our facility and all that kind of stuff but the the story of cross point for eight and a half years now is a story of the power of God for salvation through his gospel on display that it's his story we just get to be a part of it so every time we have a baptism, we get a public profession of faith of somebody that's saying, I was dead and now I'm alive because of what Christ has done. And It's a picture of the power of God for salvation through his gospel. And there's been lives transformed. There's been people that were running from God that have come back and repented and turned back to him and found their life in him again. There's been marriages restored. There's been families reconciled. There's kids that show up every week that are ready to take notes. I was talking to one kid that a couple weeks ago got a new Bible and a new journal for Christmas and he told me these words like he's like six or seven he's like I just can't wait I was so excited to be able to finally use it today like that's the power of God to transform lives through this message it's the power of God for salvation and we've experienced that and and that's what he seems to be saying like why am I not ashamed of this why am I not embarrassed of this message? No matter what everybody says about me, I'm going to proclaim this gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation. It's the only, it's the only place that you can find this transformation, the only place you can find meaning and purpose. That's why it's the power of God. And it's for everyone. He says it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So whosoever will may come. If you put your faith in Jesus, only Jesus, and you're a believer and you've experienced the power of God for salvation. You've been moved from death to life. And if you're in the room right now and you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus yet, you, you, you would say, I'm probably not a believer yet. First of all, man, we're so glad you're here. That's awesome. Glad you're here. We'd love to have conversation with you. We'd love to help you answer questions, whatever. But if you're not a believer yet, then maybe this seems a little bit like foolishness. and Maybe this seems a little bit offensive. But if you'll just put your faith in Jesus you'll find that it's the power of God for salvation for everyone. No matter what you think, maybe you think, I don't really need that. But when you submit to him, when you turn away from yourself and you surrender to him, you find that it's the power of God for salvation and it's for everyone. And he says for the Jew first and also to the Greek, which is a phrase that he's going to continue to unpack throughout the book of Romans. But one thing it's telling us and reminding us is it's for all peoples. Everyone means every nation, every tribe, every tongue. That's who the gospel's for. It reminds me of Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, talking to the religious leaders. And he says, This, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see what he's saying? Jesus is the hope for the world. Their salvation is found in no one else, no other name under heaven, which means all of us on earth. There's no other salvation other than Jesus. So, Jesus is the hope for the Jew. He's the hope for the Gentile. Jesus is the only hope for them. He's the only hope for the Muslim. He's the only hope for the Buddhist. He's the only hope for the atheist. He's the only hope for the agnostic. He's the only hope for the sinners. He's the only hope for all of us. He is the only hope for the world. This power of God for salvation is for everyone, everyone who believes. The next thing he seems to say is that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. That verse 17 he says for in it in it being the gospel in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. And this is one of those phrases when you're studying you're like what in the world cuz No one really knows exactly what Paul meant by the phrase, the righteousness of God. And so everybody wants to come up with an opinion. And you can spend days reading their opinions. I'll send you the links if you want to, like, get some sleep. Right? So there's, there's all these ideas. And people are like, hey, the righteousness of God is obviously the fact that God is holy and he's righteous. He's set apart. He's just. And we're not. And you say, yeah, okay, that's revealed in the gospel. But that's not... That hasn't been hidden. That's always been there. In the Old Testament screamed that, that God is holy and just and righteousness. So I don't, I don't think that's exactly what Paul's talking about. I think maybe what, part of what he's talking about, but it's not the full picture. And so what you start to see is that the, this phrase righteousness of God, here's what it seems to mean. It means everything that God has done to make us right with him again. Like the gospel message is that we are separated from him because of our sin we've rebelled against him, we've become enemies of God, and we're hopeless. We're without God and without hope in the world. We can't get our way back. We can't earn it. We can't do anything to deserve it. Like, we're separated, cut off, alienated from God because of our sin. And the gospel message, the righteousness of God, is all of God's work in Christ to make us right with him. But we kind of know what it feels like, right, when things aren't right. Things aren't right between me and that person. Things aren't right in this relationship. And, and we need things to be made right. Well, the Bible, the gospel tells us that things aren't right between us and God because of our sin and our rebellion. And God did all this stuff to make things right again. And so the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel is the way that God gives us. A right standing with him gives us his righteousness. Here's what Stott says about it It seems legitimate to affirm, therefore, that the righteousness of God is God's righteous initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own, but his. And I, that's kind of a mouthful. He says this phrase, righteousness of God, here's what it is it's God's righteous work, it's what he's done in Christ, to make us right with him again. And the way he did that was he gave us righteousness. Jesus died on the cross, and as a gift, when we put our faith in him, he gives us his righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is given to us as a gift. It's imputed to us. And because of that, we now have been made right with God, not because we're right, not because we're righteous, not because of anything we've done, but because what Jesus did, God declares us to be righteous. That's the word justification, which is the heart of the gospel and the heart of Romans, is that God declares us to be righteous because of what Jesus did. So now God sees us in Christ just as if we've never sinned, but also as if we've always obeyed because we have the righteousness of Jesus on our account. So he's restored us he's re- removed the sin and forgiven us of the sin and then restored us into a right relationship with him that's what stott's saying with all those words and then douglas moose said it and maybe a simpler way i wanted you to see that as well the righteousness of god is the entire process by which god acts to put people into this saving relationship everything that god has done in christ is all of his work this righteousness of God, this righteous work of God to make us sinners, put us into a right relationship, to give us a right standing, to declare us not guilty of that sin because Jesus took the punishment for us and he gave us his righteousness. That's the gospel reveals that. And What Paul's going to, he says it here in verse 17 and then he's going to spend several chapters kind of unpacking that idea. Here's how that works. Here's how that happened. Here's what he did. But the gospel is this reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals his work on our behalf that we couldn't do. And then he starts talking about faith, and he says, for this this righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, which is a quote from the book of Habakkuk. And this idea of from faith for faith, it just kind of seems like what he's saying is, hey, this, this all starts with faith, and it just continues with faith faith in the beginning, faith in the end, faith in the middle. So I think one of the ways we could say that is by faith we receive the gospel and live. This Habakkuk um, phrase here that he, he grabs from the Old Testament, people want to translate it two different ways. And one is exactly the way it's written here in the ESV, the righteous shall live by faith. That by faith is how we live it we don't just get saved by faith and then move on to do things but we get saved by faith and then we live out our lives by faith but another way you can translate that would be to say that those who have faith have been made righteous and those are the ones who will live that they'll live for all eternity with him and they'll live with abundance here and now because of what he's done in their lives and I would look at that and I go both are true both those statements can be true about this, like both those ways of understanding that. that it's only because of what God has done that we have the, we have the hope of living with him forever and, and experiencing life the way he intended it to be now. But it's also the way that we experience that life, the way that we follow, the way that we obey is through faith. So it's from faith for faith, faith in the beginning, faith all the way through. And when you start to kind of see that, It's by faith we receive this. It's not something we earn. It's not something we do. It's the gift of God, the power of God, his righteousness revealed in God. Here's what it starts to help us push aside the temptation to be embarrassed and ashamed of this message. No matter what the world says, no matter what they think of us, no matter what they do to us, we can stand on this truth that here's what the gospel is and that helps us. And Paul seems to be pointing us to that. And he's going to keep saying this over and over and help us understand it more. But the gospel, the gospel is all about Jesus. It's not a philosophy. It's not a concept. It's not an idea. It's it's about a person. It's a story. The Son of God taking on flesh, living a perfect life, dying in our place on the cross, buried and rose again to conquer sin, to conquer death. The gospel is about Jesus. So if you really want to find that place of Boldness and confidence, and uh, push away the shame. The Bible says, "Look to Jesus." Know the gospel, but in the gospel, you find it's all about Him. So, look to Jesus. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, "Hey, we're going to look at Jesus." When we're running the race and we're trying to be faithful, and we're pushing aside this shame. We look to Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus, and then it says. For the joy that was set before him, he's the author and perfecter of our faith, and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and then it says in Hebrews, despising the shame. There's no more shameful way to die than what Jesus experienced on the cross. That's the the height of shame, dying like a, a horrible criminal on the cross, brutal. And it says that Jesus, because of the joy set before him, the joy of his glory when he conquers death and conquers sin and conquers the grave, that the joy put before him for his glory, the joy put before him of providing hope and rescue and salvation for you and for me when there was no other way apart from him, for the joy of that, he endured the cross and he despised the shame, which means he ignored the shame. He pushed right through it. He didn't care. He went to the cross anyway. Man, when you see Jesus doing that, you understand that you've experienced the power of God's salvation in your life, the transformation. It'll push that shame away. It'll Like, look at what he endured. Look at the, how he despised the shame. He ignored it. He rejected it. And you'll come to be like Paul, and you'll say, hey, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I don't care what anybody says. This is the power of God. And because of what Jesus did, he set us free from the law of sin and death. We're going to see that in Romans. But he's also set us free from shame. He set us free to know that this is his word. This is the truth. This is what we stand on. This is is what's changed our lives. The power of God in the gospel has changed us. It's the righteousness of God. We have a right standing where we had no chance without him. He's done that for us. And by faith, we receive that. And by faith, he'll keep us living that until the end. Let's pray. God, thanks for the truth of the gospel and thanks for the truth of Romans and your word God I pray that you'll help us as we, as we walk through it I, just, I pray that you'll just help us to know more of the gospel to understand more fully what you've done for us um, because of the work of Christ and as we see more of that as we experience more of your power in it we understand it more God I pray that you'll produce in us fruit and one of the fruits that I pray that you'll produce for us is the ability to stand firm on the truth of the gospel and not be ashamed. God, help us to do that for your glory and for our joy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.